For the scripture reading today, I will be reading from Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Thank you, Bunny, for stepping in and playing today, and Sylvia for that text. Today is a first. Well, it all, it's almost two firsts. One, it's uh, 12, 11, 37, so, wow, I don't think I've gotten up to preach this early in a while. We'll get out on time today, hopefully. But it's a first for me in terms of the subject, preaching about marriage. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never enjoyed sermons on marriage. And there are several trepidations that I have taking on the subject. For many years, of course, it was that I was very new at marriage. Um, When you are trying to preach to people who've been married 50 and 60 years and you've been married three, uh, it seems a little contraindicated. You... You just don't have the base of experience. And then if you have uh, been married a little while, but you haven't raised any children, um, you're missing a whole nother segment of the marriage and family dynamic in preaching. And then, of course, you realize that uh, we are approaching a period in Earth's history in California where at least 50% of people are single. So there is... uh, high degree of irrelevance, if you will, on the subject. And when I say single, I mean they're young, not married yet, or they're divorced, or they're widowed, or that type of thing. And so I've hesitated on the grounds of relevance to segments of the population. And then sermons on marriage are often uh, moralistic in their overtones, and I, I don't enjoy that either. So, <laughs> you may say, well, that was a really good list. <laughs> Why are you taking it on? And that's a good question. And hopefully, as we progress through some stories and share a little bit about our theme, uh, that will become increasingly clear. And those of you who are not married, I think you'll find in all of this something for you too, because I'm keenly aware of the limitations here. Well, I I still don't have 50 or 60 years. Um, That'll come in time and fast enough. I I will have 19 years in on marriage uh, coming September, and come October I'll have 16 years of raising a child, and I know that just pales in experiential comparison to some of you. And my hats are off to those of you who have uh, succeeded at many times uh, that span of marriage or multiples of children, etc. So it's with that humility I recognize that my in-laws are here with 50, is it one already, years of marriage? And my own parents are coming up on their 50th this summer. And uh, there are some of you out there who've managed to succeed at this for a long time, so good for you. Uh, Having said those things, my trepidations and so forth, let's let's hit it for just a minute. I, I think 
before I totally leave my discomfort zone, uh, there are just a couple other things that I, I have uh, a degree of discomfort with, so hopefully we won't, uh, we won't go there. One is that uh, I realize, by way of commercial to you all, that helping and fixing marriages takes infinitely more than a sermon. So I wanted to dispel the naivete surrounding that. And I also wanted to address the fact that we have in this culture a nearly 50% divorce rate. I mentioned divorce earlier. But it's not much different in Christianity. And so I don't want anybody to leave thinking that because I've talked about marriage and fidelity in marriage that I stand in judgment of any of you. Marriage is an awesome and a difficult thing. Okay, enough of that. Uh, I also wanted to give you something about what the sermon is not about. Is it, is it, is it bad form to start with negatives? This is not a sermon about family structures. That is to say, I'm not here to persuade you of how things ought to look. It's not a sermon about the virtues or vices of polygamy or gay marriage or anything else. It is not about that today. Nor is it about literal interpretations of Levitical marital code or divorce codes. It's not about mixed marriages or religious intermarriage, and it's not about condemnation. What I hope today's sermon will be about are the following things. Fidelity. There is a code that we see on bumper stickers for the Marine Corps everywhere. What does it say? And what does the Phi stand for? And what does it mean? Close. There's an adjective to faithful. Always faithful. Semper Fidelis, always faithful. It is about covenantal understandings. It is about relational understandings. It is about family in the broadest sense of the term. And it is about the spiritual significance and implications and analogies. And it is about not consummation per se, but the great consummation and the symbolism of God and church. And so with that uh, ostentatious introduction, let's open the word. I think the basis for any understanding of marriage starts in about Genesis 2.24 or thereabouts. Feel free to turn in your Bibles. You have two creation stories 
in 1 and 2. And by the time we get to verse 24, we have finished the second recounting or the second chapter recounting of how man came to be. And if I back up a little bit to verse 20, part B, it says this, But for Adam no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And so we have a early, early description. And I love the story that it comes from. This notion that the one is taken from the other or part of the other. And of course, it's not difficult to take the next step and understand then that from woman, man was born for perpetuity. We all have one mother. And so we have this very physical, very fleshly sort of understanding. But just as flesh gives rise to soul, because you remember in this very same story, in the part A story, in the chapter 1 story, man is formed from dust or clay, and God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living being. And so something vital and alive, something spiritual and reminiscent of the life of God itself becomes of flesh, of matter. And in this description, human taken from human, Adam saying, this is now flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. Something more mystical arises. Out of flesh and out of separateness, union and oneness. And for these reasons, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife. And it throws in this little bit about, and they were naked and felt no shame, because that is going to be a very important part of the chapter 3 story, in which Adam and Eve rebel against God, and their first thought is for their nakedness. And so there's a lack of self-consciousness in this relationship in chapter 2 that speaks pre-fall. And marriage since the fall has been a deliberate act of trying to quelch self-consciousness, hasn't it? Maybe that's too pithy a statement. Let me make it a little simpler. We have tried since the fall to recreate an open, an honest sort of way of being in relationship that is unashamed. (coughs) Excuse me. And it's very difficult for us to do, very difficult for us to achieve. We all want to hide 
even sometimes in marriage, the worst parts of ourselves and those pieces for which there are shame. So this is the beginning. This is the origin, and Jesus will refer to this multiple times. He'll refer to it in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10. Paul will refer back to this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, and in Ephesians 5, he will quote it. So this becomes something that is is, uh, seminal in our understanding. Now the title of today's sermon is called Staying Married. And the reason for that is that it's part of a series, and I want to just kind of refresh us very quickly on that. The series is tools, spiritual tools for surviving tough times. And I'm just going to refer to my, my sort of past cheat sheet of notes because we're now getting quite a ways into the series. First one was about our definition, who we are as people, our grounding, based in creation, belonging to God, defined by God. Second sermon in the series focused on the fact that not only are we created in the divine image and belong to God, but that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And it was, in essence, a statement of stewardship. That is to say, we really don't own anything, so what can we fear in losing something? It is simply ours to manage, and our lives are ours as long as we're to live. And God is, God is the one who owns it all. The third sermon was trust. Trust is a spiritual tool for surviving tough times. People who cannot trust uh, find that their world spins into very difficult places. And we learn from the story of Job that trust means that even when the most dire of things happen to us, even death, though worms destroy our bodies, these bodies God formed, yet In our very flesh will we see God. So there's a trust in God that's temporal and a trust in God that's eternal. We then went to a two-parter on solitude and multitude, family and community, in which I talked about a couple of things. First, this whole notion of Jesus. Well, we first talked about kind of Lent in this, this one with 40 days and 40 nights themes. We talked about the great stories of Moses and Elijah and Jesus in the wilderness. But we took from that passage of Jesus commissioning and said, freely you have received, freely give. And noted that God is not sometimes in the biggest things, but in the smallest. And that if we'll seek him in solitude and bring his presence back to multitude, God can truly bless. Solitude was a tool for surviving tough times. And then we noted that in the second sermon, family and community were tools for surviving tough times. Reading Acts chapter 2, everything was held in common and everyone gave to the other as he had need. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts and enjoyed the favor of God and were added to daily. So solitude and multitude, family and community become not just words, 
but become tools. And it's out of that sense of family and what that really means that I want to talk today about staying married. Now here is the short version of the sermon. You ready? Get your note page out. Stay married. If you can. You see what happens is, I'll get this uh, succinctly to you. In the United States, one of the number one reasons for divorce is not infidelity, that's number two. Number one is financial trouble. And we're living in economic times in which even very stable people, very high-earning people, people who have done traditionally, according to financial management, most things right, are in big trouble. They're finding themselves overextended. They're finding themselves stressed. It's challenging the social culture at home. People are having to do things that they didn't have to do or let go of things that they didn't have to let go of before. And the stress and strain upon marriage as you struggle day to day to figure out how to make ends meet or how to survive or how to keep your family together or how to keep your home or how to find that new job or how one is going to work who hasn't worked when the other who's always worked isn't going to work. Some of you remember that old movie, Mr. Mom, with Michael Keaton. It's challenging. And when our expectations of what we're going to get out of life and what we're going to get out of marriage and what we're going to get out of family and what we're going to contribute in those contexts, when those expectations are violated, it's very easy to say, this isn't what I signed up for. And so people walk. But if your minister did his job or your judge did her job or his job, you heard the phrase, in richer and in poorer, you did sign up for that. And breaking up marriages and families over economic stress is not a solution and not God's solution. Now, I want to be careful on blanket advice. Here's a caveat. You are married to somebody who makes $50,000 a year and spends $60,000 a year in gambling and has been through rehab or refuses to go to rehab and continues to destroy the family's potential health and well-being with their addiction. Jesus, as we'll read, hates divorce, but that is a gross act of infidelity. And it may be that there are circumstances in which a family can be saved or strengthened in part by a separation or by a divorce, as awful as that is. So I'm not here to preach a blanket for you. I'm here to give you some tools to help you think through your own struggles and your own challenges. People who stay married, by the way, tend to live longer and do better financially, in case you were wondering. And I hate to mention this, but if some of you ever feel like the marital bed is just a little bit, um, well, 
people who are married statistically do better in the marital bed than people who aren't. Was that subtly enough said for the pulpit or have I been fired? There are so many rich stories in scripture about marriage and themes. I hope that you'll you'll bear with me if I just sort of go through a few different ideas. I think I'll start with the most uh, dire since we just addressed it, and that's divorce. You see, in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of bizarre provisions for marriage. There was even a provision made for marriage in the case of raping a virgin. And it was specified as to whether the virgin was raped in the city or in the fields. That's how detailed the explanations and expectations are in Deuteronomy and in these sections of judgment and expectation. But in Deuteronomy 24, we find a sort of basis, if you will, for what Jesus will talk about later. Feel free to turn there. I'm going to look at verse 3. If I can find 3, I don't have my glasses. Let's go, let's go to one. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house, and after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then the first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be t- d- detestable in the eyes of the Lord." Now, I don't know about you, but culturally, that's Hebrew to me. It's a foreign concept. And if we went to read all of the regulations about marriage, it's bizarre. If I had a brother and he died and had no children, I would have to marry his wife and have children by her for my brother. Some of you might think that might be a neat setup. I think there's a little sect uh, that no longer is claimed by the Latter-day Saints in parts of Utah that might welcome you, I don't know. The point is that by the time of Christ, people could write certificates of divorce not just for indecent things, but for just about anything. And Jesus addressed this hard and hit it head-on. In Matthew 19, he addresses it. In Mark 10, he addresses it. In Luke 16, he addresses it. And he ups the bar. And Jesus' agenda is not necessarily mine today, but what Jesus is saying is, look, people have value. Women have value. And you cannot throw them away for no reason. So therefore, if anyone marries for anything less than adultery, if anybody divorces for anything less than adultery and remarries, they are guilty of adultery. Jesus put the bar way up here. Now, we sometimes in church spend a lot of time trying to parse these things out. You've heard sermons on this. I know you have. And we've had uh, 
various churches, hopefully not this one, I don't know, but churches have long hearings when a divorce has taken place to ascertain who the adulterer was and to discipline them appropriately and make sure that they were no longer part of the fellowship while the other person was. Have you ever been to a church where that kind of proceeding took place? Ooh, only three of you. That's great. Oh, I'm so happy. So few of you have had to be part of something like that. And again, this is not my purpose today. Jesus puts a high premium on this commitment because as we'll see later in our discussion, it's symbolic of something really vital and important. You see, in the Old Testament, Jesus understood that this was all a symbol of covenant and faithfulness. You see, in the patriarchal age, yes, there was polygamy. And in Deuteronomy, we find various statements about the context of marriage. And we find a lot about intermarriage in the source of the judges and Joshua and when Israel was settling the land. And we find out a lot about kings and marriage in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. But we start to find out about faithfulness when we get to statements like this. Malachi 2. Would you turn there? Malachi 2. What is Malachi 2 next to, by the way? Malachi 3. Somebody out there uh, graduated from first grade. That's exactly right. And what is in Malachi 3? I'm listening. Tithes and offerings. What do you think the overall theme is here? Fidelity. Somebody's listening. Semper Fidelis, always faithful. That's what Malachi is talking about. Malachi 2. And I'm going to start here in, I think, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers? By breaking faith with one another. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord God Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the altar with tears. You weep and wail because you no longer pay attention to your offerings, because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as, a, as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking God, godly offering, excuse me, offspring. 
So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord God Almighty. Covering our nakedness, you remember the reference? So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. And it goes on in chapter 3 in the same theme, and then it talks about how you've robbed me in tithes and offerings and so forth. Is Malachi speaking of a particular incidence of divorce? Do you think? Do you think Malachi is addressing a particular thing that's happened in Judah or Jerusalem? No. Malachi is using the marital covenant as an illustration of what it means to always be faithful and what it means to break the faith. Malachi is using the story of God and his people to talk about breaking faith. And so in some ways, the sermon today, in fact, in most ways, the sermon today is not just about marriage in terms of the economics of our time, in terms of the social structures of our time, in terms of divorce versus not divorcing in our time. What it is about is whether or not we will break faith with God. Did you catch that? There is a literal level in which what I am speaking to you is true. One of the tools you have for surviving tough times is family. And marriage, covenantal marriage, is part of that. And honoring and staying within that will be a source of strength to you in tough times. With certain notable exceptions. But what it is spiritually significant for and what we're spiritually talking about is the relationship of God to his people. Turn to Revelation 19. If you have read this, you know the context. The context is this incredible sound of praise to God. Verse 1. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. Alleluia. And we have this wonderful worship scene of the 24 elders and the living creatures falling down before God and worshiping and crying out, Amen, Alleluia! And it says in verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Jeremiah says, Will a bride forget to ornament herself? She's decked out. She's looking good. The bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. 
and this stands by the way for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, for blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. We've read this passage so many times. And yet what is being spoken of in this context of great worship and great celebration is the final consummation. Not the act of husband and wife, naked but without shame. Not the act of being fruitful and multiplying, not the context of family, but the context of the great multitude and God, the redeemed and the Lamb. The context is one of a people who are ready, prepared as a bride, and a bridegroom who is Jesus Christ, who is ready to be with them and be their God forever. It's an extension of covenant which speaks of eternity to you and I. And in the context of brokenness, in the context of need, in the context of failed marriages all around us, the marriage of the bridegroom and the bride of Christ, the church, is one that never fails. And that brings us to community, doesn't it? A spiritual tool for survival is fidelity to God. He is always faithful to you. And he asks that we be faithful to him. In our lives to you, young, old, single, married, widowed, divorced, keep us faithful to you. And bless us in our homes whatever our family structure may be and keep us in marriage that these tools might go with us for tough times in the name of Jesus who is always faithful we pray amen